Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, we pray that you might give us the faith to believe so that you might do mighty works in us. Open our eyes that we may see. Help us to hear as you speak to us through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. And you might ask yourself, as you hear their response to Jesus, whether Nazareth knows something that you don't. Does Nazareth know something that we don't know? Because they hear the wisdom of Jesus, and they witness the mighty works, but they're not fooled. They don't fall for it. They know better. They know him. And they reject him out of knowledge. We might call this the Nazareth complex. The Nazareth complex. And realize, as we coin the term, that we're surrounded by it. That this same sentiment is all around us. 21st century American culture is Nazareth. People here aren't ignorant of Jesus. They grew up with this stuff. They know all about it. They certainly don't need you to tell them about Jesus. In fact, they could probably tell you a thing or two about Jesus. They reject him because they know him, not because they don't. Telling them about Jesus, that's just telling them things they already know. It's not just annoying It's offensive. As we consider this moment at the end of Matthew 13, the conclusion of this discourse on parables, I want us to understand Nazareth. I want us to see what these people know and what they don't know. I want us to understand why and where Nazareth gets Jesus wrong And then what I want to ask whether, as a church, we might be more like Nazareth than we realize. So what does Nazareth actually know? These people are acting on knowledge. They're confident in their knowledge. But what do they actually know? This little passage, this paragraph at the end of chapter 13, 
should ring a bell for you because it feels like we were just talking about something really similar, and we were. That was at the end of Matthew 12. Remember, at the end of chapter 12, Jesus' family shows up and they try to get an audience with him. And we know from the context from Mark's gospel that what they're hoping to do is, is like get him off the stage, like kind of maybe find some help for him, get him to be quiet because he's causing a lot of trouble with his teachings and they do not believe in him. Here, the same thing happens. It's not his family, it's his hometown, but a similar kind of action takes place. Right, That moment, at the end of chapter 12, kind of illustrated the height of the resistance to Jesus and his kingdom. Right? We saw a, a opposition to Jesus' message that ran so deep that it affected the people who were closest to him. Even his family was against him. Here, it's his hometown that rejects him, but it's the same idea. The fancy term for this kind of narrative structure is inclusio. The end of chapter 12, the end of chapter 13, form like brackets in the story because we're told a story about opposition to the gospel that explains why Jesus starts teaching in parables. And then at the end of his teaching on parables, we see once again the continuing opposition. So Jesus' parables aren't turning people around and opening their eyes. Instead, we see a continued resistance to the teaching of Jesus. Right? The parables were a response to that resistance, but now the resistance is only increasing. And there's an irony to this. Given everything that we've already learned from the parables, we now see the people of Nazareth kind of acting them out. Right? Nazareth is demonstrating the literal truth of the images that we've encountered in the parables. They are weeds in the field. They are bad fish in the net. They do not value the kingdom rightly. In fact, specifically in the questions that they ask, they see the humble circumstances of the kingdom, and they don't see the great work God will do through it. They see the humility of Jesus' family ties, and they have contempt for it. It's because of what they see that they can dismiss the kingdom altogether. But think about that rejection and what it means. Now, Matthew sums up the state of things in Nazareth right at the end of our text with a word he uses to describe the condition of the people. It's translated here, in the ESV as unbelief. Their unbelief. Uh, this is translated in the NIV as lack of faith. Both of those translations are, are good because the Greek word that they're translating is apistean. Now, pistos is belief or faith, and when you put an ah in front of something, it negates the thing that that ah is attached to. So, uh, people who feel deeply about things have a lot of pathos, but people who don't are apathetic, right? They don't have those feelings. Theists believe in God, but atheists do not, right? So that's what's happening here. The word faith is having a, a negation attached to it. They are apisteo. They are lacking in faith, and that is their condition. They are without belief. The questions that they're asking 
are not the reason for their unbelief. Their unbelief goes deeper than that. Their unbelief conditions the skepticism, but the questions do reveal what we might think of as the rationale, like how they're explaining their condition of unbelief, like how they're explaining their resistance. And that rationale is important because it is the thing that all too often we have in common with Nazareth. Right? They reject Jesus because of familiarity. They reject him because they know him. They're offended by the authority of Jesus' teaching because they know his humble family ties. Many of them, I'm sure, were hoping that God would send the promised king. But they were not expecting the promised king to be one of them. They were not expecting to have to bow down to someone from their neighborhood, someone whose family they knew, someone from their hometown. That is not what they were anticipating. Who does he think he is talking this way? Who does he think he is thinking we would bow down to him? We know him. We know where he comes from. We know his family. Who is he to lord it over us? That's the spirit of the questions that they ask. Jesus explains the situation by coining a phrase, giving us an aphorism. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. In other words, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. So what does Nazareth know? What does Nazareth not know? I get what Jesus is saying here. I understand that familiarity breeds contempt. I I not only know that a prophet is not respected, even in his own household, I live that reality day after day. Lori's always telling me clever things Tim Keller says. Tim Keller preached a sermon. It was so full of truth. You've got to hear what Tim Keller said. And I listen, and I'm like, you know who else says that? Mark Bertrand says that. He says it constantly, and and I think even a little more eloquently than Tim Keller did. But somehow, when Tim says it, Lori believes it. And when Mark says it, she thinks it must be nonsense. It can't be true. She needs to hear it from Tim before she can believe it. It's just not the same coming from me. In my own household, I am without honor. It's the same thing for Jesus and his household and his hometown, right? Not really. Not really. You may think you relate to what Jesus is saying, but, but what I just described does not actually capture the reality of what he's facing here. Right? Lori doesn't hear what I say until Kim, Tim Keller repeats it because she knows me. It's not just that she knows me, it's what she knows about me that makes her skeptical. She has a knowledge of me, of my ways, of what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of that leads her to believe that if I'm saying something, you probably want to hear it from a second source before you take it to the bank. That knowledge justifies her skepticism. You see what I mean? The more you know your husband or your wife, the more you know your parents or your children, you find that knowledge justifies your skepticism more often than not. 
right? My wife knows my shortcomings. She knows what I'm like at my worst. That knowledge justifies her skepticism of my authority. But knowing me is different from knowing Jesus. Knowing about me is a lot different from knowing about Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you know what he's like, then that knowledge would justify trusting his authority. You see the difference? If you actually know him and what he's like, that knowledge would lead you to trust him, not to be skeptical of him. If you know him, then you will accept him. And that's the problem of Nazareth. Because Nazareth claims to know him, but then rejects him based on what it thinks it knows. And that reveals something about Nazareth. Nazareth doesn't know what it thinks it does. Nazareth has a misplaced confidence in its own knowledge. Nazareth claims to know Jesus, but actually it doesn't. And that's the tragedy of what we see here. Their familiarity isn't revealing the truth to them. It is concealing the truth from them. So why does Nazareth get Jesus wrong? And what is it about Jesus that Nazareth gets wrong? Remember when we talked about parables at the very beginning and I gave you a little definition of a parable? I said it's a cryptic narrative analogy. It's a story that symbolizes some deeper mystery. I said these stories, these parables, they conceal. But with a little bit of time and a little bit of work, they also reveal. A parable can conceal truth, but it can also reveal what is true. The knowledge of Nazareth, the familiarity that Nazareth has, the story Nazareth tells itself about Jesus is a kind of parable. It's a story that people tell themselves. Whenever the subject of Jesus comes up, this is what they say. If anyone talks about this this wonder-working Messiah who's doing these great things, people in Nazareth are like, oh yeah, I know where he comes from. And they tell themselves this story of his origin. That story doesn't reveal the truth about Jesus. It actually hides the truth from people who believe the story. But that's actually what the story's for. That's the purpose of the story. It's why they tell themselves this story about Jesus so that they don't need to believe in the truth of what he says. That is so human. That is such a human thing for them to do. We all do this. We tell ourselves stories to justify ourselves, to justify our actions, to justify our inactions. We create histories, narratives that make us look like heroes and make other people look like they're the villains. Stories that hide the realities that we don't want to come face to face with. We all do this. We all hide from reality by making up parables for ourselves. But what is the reality that Nazareth doesn't want to face? It is simply the authority of Jesus. It's his kingship. By telling themselves this story, they can ignore his kingship. 
they can explain why they don't follow him when people say, you of all people should follow him. You are the closest to him. This is how they justify their skepticism. They do a little bit like Nathaniel does in John chapter 1. Right? Here's another irony. In John chapter 1, when Nathaniel is told that there's a Messiah and he comes from Nazareth, Nathaniel says, well, actually, nothing good comes from Nazareth. And you see, even the people of Nazareth believe this. It's inconceivable to them that the Messiah could come from their hometown. Nazareth is telling itself a story about Jesus so it can hide from the authority of Jesus. But Nazareth is lying to itself. It's taking something that it is supremely ignorant of and claiming to know it better than anyone else. Jesus explained this phenomena to us already. Earlier in Matthew 13, he quoted the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6. He said, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. That's what's happening in Jesus' hometown. They hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive. They know, but they don't know. They're blind. And we today are like them. Our country today is like them. Oftentimes we describe our culture as a post-Christian culture, right? It's increasingly moving beyond the time when Christian assumptions were the baseline assumptions of our society. Now, when you hear that term post-Christian, we tend to assume it implies some failure on the part of Christianity, right? If we're moving on from Christianity, then Christianity must somehow have proven inadequate, If we used to be predominantly Christian in our country and we aren't anymore, then there must have been something wrong with Christianity. So we tell ourselves. It's a story that we tell ourselves to justify our unbelief. Secondly, because of the history of the place where we live, there are these relics of Christianity that are all around us. There's this influence of Christianity that's baked into the fabric of things. An influence so obvious in our history that it's natural for anyone here to assume that whatever there is they need to know about Christianity, they already know it. People aren't wandering through this culture wondering what Christianity is all about. Ask them. They can tell you what it's all about. What you hear may surprise you, What you hear may not sound very accurate, but like Nazareth's skepticism, America's skepticism is deeply held with great confidence. And as a result, you constantly hear people who are both confidently dismissive of the Christian faith and also, at the very same time, fundamentally ignorant of the Christian faith. Confident but ignorant. Rationalizing, justifying their dismissal of it. And like I say, that their knowledge of Christianity, what they think Christianity is, is a caricature. It doesn't bear a great resemblance to reality, but it does serve the purpose, as it did in Nazareth, of justifying unbelief. 
Like it's a good excuse not to take seriously the claims of Christ. And as a result, the reality of Jesus is hidden in plain sight. We're blind to it because we think we already know it. We think we already know what Jesus is all about. Now, hearing this and realizing this, it would be easy to think that our mission as 21st century Christians in this Nazareth-like culture must be to confront their ignorance and to replace it with the true knowledge that we possess. But not so fast. We also need to recognize that while our culture suffers from this Nazareth complex, there's also a sense in which the church suffers from it too. That Greek word, apisteo, lack of faith. Pisteo is faith, but also carries connotations of faithfulness with it. And a lot of us don't lack for faith. We do lack for faithfulness. And lack of faithfulness is what we see all around us in the church today. If the world around us is lying to itself about Jesus by telling itself that it knows all about him when it really doesn't, don't you lie to yourself about Jesus by telling yourself that you listen to him when you really don't? And isn't that kind of the same thing? Before we think it's our job to ride to the rescue and to correct the ignorance of others, we need to examine ourselves and see where we are telling ourselves lies to let ourselves off the hook when it comes to obedience. The world worships gods that it makes with its own hands, that it makes in its own image. But what do we do? We take our beliefs, our values, and we make an idol, and we assign all those things to our idol, and we call him Jesus. But he's not the Jesus of Scripture. He's the Jesus we've made up to justify not listening to the Jesus of Scripture. So how can we really know the real Jesus? That's the problem in a nutshell. And the solution has to start here. It has to start with us. Before we can ever do anything out there, something has to happen in here. So this Nazareth complex, it's a two-part problem, right? There's ignorance, right? Ignorance that masquerades as knowledge when it's really just an excuse for unbelief. But there's also indifference that masquerades as obedience when it's really an excuse for staying comfortable. Some people deny Jesus by rejecting what they claim to know, and others deny him by ignoring what they claim to know. But both of those things are resistance, which means that the solution involves two things, right? Real knowledge as an antidote to ignorance, real knowledge of who Jesus is, but then also actual obedience to what Jesus says where we don't just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but we follow after him. Where we do as Jesus calls us to do. But how do you begin to dismantle the familiar lies that you've told yourself, the justifications that you've made as an excuse for your failure to follow him? Well, the tool that you need is something that we used to call in uh, 
literary criticism, defamiliarization. Defamiliarization. The idea was this, that there are some things we're so familiar with that we actually don't see them anymore. We take them for granted, and what we need is to be shaken up a little bit to see them with fresh eyes. I'll give you an example. Maybe you've had this experience before. If you're one of those people who primarily just reads the Bible through one translation, and you're very familiar with that one translation, and then you pick up a different translation and it feels kind of weird, you're like, there's something not Bible-y about these words. They don't sound exactly right. You read a familiar passage in words that don't seem familiar, and it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, but then you see something that you didn't see before, and you're like, wait a second, I think I understand what those words mean in a way that I didn't when they were so familiar to me, when I could just rattle them off by memory without appreciating what it was they were saying. That is defamiliarization. An uncomfortable experience that actually gets us to see what's in front of us more clearly. When you get past the discomfort, you gain actual knowledge. And it lands with a weight that it didn't have before. That's what we need in our lives before Christ. We need things that we've become too comfortable with and too familiar with to become uncomfortable and unfamiliar enough for us to see rightly what it is Jesus is calling us to and what it is Jesus is calling us away from. And until we have that, then we too are just making excuses. But the answer for us, in fact, the answer for all of us, whoever you are, wherever you're at, whether you are an unbeliever who thinks you know all about Jesus, or you're a believer who thinks you know all about following him, what you need to do is actually the same thing. You need to humble yourself before him. You need to admit your ignorance. You need to let Jesus tell you who he is and what it is that he wants. And listen, and actually hear it. Another way of thinking about this is we need to return to the longings that we see and the Apostle Paul. In a passage that we've looked at already in this sermon series, Philippians 3, we didn't read as far as we could have last time, so I'm going to read a little farther than we did. This is the, the passage where Paul talks about the, the loss, the sacrifices he made, and how they don't mean anything to him in comparison to gaining Christ. But listen to everything he says here. He says, indeed, I count Everything is lost because of the the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul longed to know him. If anyone could have just assumed that he already did, surely it was Paul. 
Surely it was the man who'd met him on the Damascus Road. Surely it was the one who'd sacrificed everything for him. If anyone could claim to know him, surely Paul could have claimed to know him. Like Nazareth, he could have said, I know the guy. But instead, here a longing in Paul that drives everything that he does. It is a longing to know him, a longing to know him more, a longing to follow him in the kind of life, the kind of example that he set, which, yes, involves sharing his suffering. That's what Paul longs for. And if we want to get past the lies that we've told ourselves, that's what we must long for, too. Because if you long to know him, you will know him. He will reveal himself to you. Only in humble repentance and obedience can we really know the real Jesus. But to do that, there is one last thing we have to do. We have to get over our offendedness. That's the striking moment in this passage, right? They're asking questions, and maybe you're thinking they're, they're going in a different direction than they are. They're saying, hey, don't we know this guy? Where did he get this knowledge? Where did he get the ability to do these mighty works? Isn't his mom Mary? Aren't these his brothers? Aren't these his sisters? Maybe they're saying, cool, the Messiah comes from Nazareth. He's one of us. I believe in him. No, no. They're putting all this stuff together, and Matthew says they're offended. It offends them what he's saying. What's the source of that offense? And why couldn't they get past it? Well, the source of the offense is is pride. The humbling that would be necessary for them to listen to what's being said. Right? Instead of listening, they took offense at him. Well, as they say, the best defense is a good offense or good offense, right? And oftentimes, we use our offendedness as a defense, as a shield, so that we don't have to take seriously the thing that is making us uncomfortable. And we see this every day. It's a powerful way to close your eyes to the things that you do not want to hear, to take offense, to hide behind your offendedness. If we're going to see Jesus and hear what he's saying, we can't hide behind that sense of offense. We have to overcome that sense of offense. And to do that, we basically just need to learn the same lesson that Susan did in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That famous passage where Mr. Beaver tells her about Aslan and describes the, the opportunity to meet him Um, it makes her nervous. As she discovers more about Aslan, she begins to wonder if Aslan is someone she actually wants to meet because Mr. Beaver says that Aslan, who is, of course, a symbol, a type of Christ, is a great lion. Susan replies, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. In any Normal situation, if you had said something that made a child nervous, you would rush to reassure them. I mean, I wouldn't, but you would. That's not what Mr. Beaver does. He does not reassure Susan. He reorients her. Safe, he says. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Susan 
her longing for safety, that's a defense mechanism. Right? That's a, a, a thing to hide behind so as not to have to confront the reality because you're afraid of the reality. She's doing a thing that we often do. When Christ calls us to something, we ask ourselves, is it safe? Is it safe? And Jesus doesn't reassure you. Jesus doesn't say, of course it's safe. You're following me. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly happen to you? I'll take care of everything. Of course, you'll never have to suffer. Jesus doesn't reassure us. Instead, Jesus and his apostles after him say, well, yeah, it may not be safe. There may be suffering. We may enter into that suffering as he did. But he's good. It isn't safe, but it's good. That longing for safety functions the same way as the false knowledge of Nazareth. Right? It's a way to neutralize Jesus. Right? To make him safe. To render him safe. What we want to believe about Jesus are the things that, that are safe to believe about him. We want to do that Jesus calls us to do are the things that are safe, the things that are easy. We want to take the stands that cost nothing. We want to make the sacrifices of the stuff we didn't really want in the first place. But Jesus hasn't called us to safety. And Jesus never renders himself safe. There's nothing you can do to be safe from the authority of Jesus. The false obedience of so-called believers does exactly the same thing as the false knowledge of Nazareth. It makes Jesus safe. It keeps us safe from his all-demanding authority. From the idea that he could want everything from us, it keeps us safe from that. Ignorance of every kind is safe. Or at least it promises Safety. But safety is not what you need. Goodness is what you need. Goodness is what you need. And if you have goodness, then safety really isn't even the right question to be asking. Those who crave a safe God will only find him by making him up. But the God you want is not a safe God. It is the good God who is the true God. If you just once come to see the true God, Jesus, the King, and recognize He is goodness incarnate, that He is beyond your conception of good, beyond your ability to measure what is good. If you see Him as He truly is, you will never again be satisfied with the illusion of safety, and you will long for goodness instead. You don't need to be kept safe from the goodness of God. If you believe that He is good, and you long to know Him, to commune with Him, you will never be offended by Him again. You will know Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.